0: Mark 8:34 through 9:13 And Jesus summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them if anyone wishes to come after me he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first and restore all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. That hymn was written a long time ago, 15 years before that hymn was written, You may have noticed that we were singing it to a French melody. There was a French satirist who said, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Some of you probably knew that that was a quote from the mid-1800s from a French satirist. The rest of us are not so intellectual, and we think more of the 2010 Bon Jovi classic. The more things change, the more they stay the same. The market keeps on crashing. Tattered jeans are back in fashion. If your jeans are tattered this morning, you're 14 years behind the times. Oh, we understand what's meant by both the the classic Bon Jovi song as well as what was intended In the mid-1800s, the more things change, the more they stay the same. There's nothing new under the sun, is the way that Ecclesiastes says it. We live in that reality, the cycle of human history. In fact, nothing reveals the truth within that statement, the statement, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Nothing reveals the truth within that statement like the Scriptures themselves. When we open the scriptures and we read, we see and we feel, particularly with the disciples, we see ourselves, we can almost feel ourselves in similar situations and circumstances, particularly with regard to the present context. Jesus calling the crowd with his disciples and saying, Who who do the people say that I am? And there's no consensus regarding who Christ was. There's no consensus in our day. So what has changed? Not much. Who do you say that I am? Jesus continued, inquiring of the disciples. Peter answered. We looked at it last week. The Christ. You're the Messiah, the promised one, the Redeemer, the one we've been waiting for. And Jesus says, don't tell anyone yet. Because the full implications of him being the Messiah were unrealized by Moshe. They were unrealized by the disciples themselves. Though they knew more than many of the masses around them, the full implications were unrealized. Namely, the suffering aspect, the rejection that he would undergo, the being killed by sinners, the being raised up on the third day. It was, it was as if Jesus was speaking a foreign language when he got to these, this aspect of his life that was just around the corner. When he began to emphasize, you're right, I'm not just the Christ, but the crucified Christ. I'm not just the person, the second person of the Trinity, but I came to accomplish a work. A work of salvation that requires suffering and death and being raised again. So not only did most people not understand the Messiah's mission, the disciples themselves are still very much in the dark about it. The suffering, the dying, the being raised from the dead, but also the return, the promised return of Christ. Christ's second coming will be glorious And it will be characterized by His might and His power. And what we see here in the passage this morning that we know commonly as the transfiguration is a display of the might and the power and the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ as a means of encouraging the immediate audience of the disciples, but us as we've gathered together this morning to consider His Word and His person and His work. 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. When He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day to be marveled at among all who have believed, His return will be marked with glory and power and it will be nothing but perfect bliss for those who are in Christ. And it will be absolute misery, eternal misery for those who refuse to repent and believe. And here in the early verses of Mark chapter 9, Jesus puts His glory and His power on display in a way that is unlike any other during His earthly life. Because it includes this promise of not just the suffering and the dying, and the being raised from the dead, but that return, when he comes again to be glorified in his saints, when he comes again and consummates the kingdom that he inaugurated. The first three points of suffering, dying, being raised from the dead, and returning, the first three are history for us. It was all future for the disciples. But the first three are history for us. So a little easier for us to believe. We can at least go and see where it was written about how it happened. But the returning, still lingering. He promised to return. Is he going to return? I mean, we find all throughout the scriptures, even before his first coming, how long, O oh Lord? When will you return? Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. It is not uncommon for us as believers in our day to feel the, the weight of the sin and the darkness and the world around us and to find ourselves crying out, How long, O oh Lord? Are you really returning? When do you wrap it all up here? And when do you usher in the new heavens and the new earth? And when do we celebrate? in glory when do we see you face to face when are we separated from this body of death and when will we will we be sinless and have the capacity and ability and privilege of worshiping you without sin forever and ever and we don't know when no one knows the hour jesus made that clear to his disciples But even not knowing the when and the how and all the particulars, we can know the definitive truth that he is returning, that he did suffer, he did die, he was raised from the dead, and he will return. And that is a large portion of the point that Jesus is making here. As Mark records this story of the transfiguration. Look again with me at verse 1 of chapter 9. Jesus was saying to them, continuing on the heels of the previous discussion that we looked at in the reading, "'Truly I say to you, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power.'" Who are those who are standing there who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power? Peter, James, and John. It's in verse 2. Six days after Jesus makes the same, they didn't have to wait long. We've been waiting a long time for him to return. They didn't have to wait long at all to see the kingdom of God after it has come with power, to get a little glimpse. It wasn't in finality, but they were given a little taste of heaven on the mountain that day. And if God will help, maybe we'll get a little of that taste as well in order that we might continue putting one foot in front of the other spiritually, walking through this life. Jesus described it as Him coming in the glory of His Father with His holy angels in verse 38. That's the final coming, the eventual coming. He follows that up immediately with, in fact, some of you are going to see it, and it's going to be soon. Even before you die, you're going to see it, he says, and he does reveal it. He reveals his kingdom of power to Peter, James, and John. Why? Why would he do that for them? Why would he do that for us? Because we need constant reminders of his power. Why? Because we're prone to forget. Because we are weak in our memory, our spiritual memory, and we need these reminders. And here Jesus is reminding Peter, James, and John, therefore his other disciples, when they get to the bottom of the mountain and are talking about it. And as Mark records it based on Peter's eyewitness account, we are able to pick up our Bibles at any time and look and see promises of God are true. He is coming back. In the most difficult days, in the darkest hours, we have the written Word of God that is all true. All of His promises are yes and amen in Christ. He came here for a few moments on this mountain in the glory of His Father, revealing the kingdom of God and its power, in order that we might be reminded in the midst of our lives that when we, are sh- when we are weak, then He is strong. And we can live in that strength. When we are prone to doubting, and we are, we can look and see His goodness and His promises and His plans for his people, remembering that he is strong, he is mighty, he's omnipotent, there's no power like the power of God, and he will complete every single work that he has begun in every individual that belongs to him. It may feel with everything in you like you will not finish, but I promise you, you will not be the first one to not finish he will complete His work in every single one of His children. What's happening here on the mountain that Mark is recording is the curtain, if you will, between this life and the next is ripped open, pulled back momentarily in order that they and we might get a glimpse We're invited to witness this glorious display of his power and his glory. Let's look at verses 2 through 8 and then 9 through 13. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. I mentioned already already, only six days. That's all they had to wait. They're all confused, even questioning and rebuking Jesus on Peter's part, on behalf of the other disciples as well, with regard to his suffering and his dying and his being raised again and his returning. It's all confusion to them, but they don't have to lose a lot of sleep over it. I mean, six days is a lot of sleep to lose, but it could have been years, decades, But Christ shows them mercy only six days later. He takes them up on this high mountain. It wasn't like the less than high mountains around here. They're high enough and they're beautiful enough, but Mount Hermon was 10,000 feet above the valley below. It would not have been an easy hike, 10,000 feet in elevation. They fell asleep upon arrival. It was quite the hike. And then Peter, James, and John were granted the privilege of seeing what most believers only witness after they die. Jesus was transfigured before them. His garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. In fact, I'm pretty disappointed in launderers on earth these days. I was telling someone recently, uh, I got a couple of very nice shirts for Christmas, and they've got something on the collars of them. I even took them to the cleaners, and they're unable to do it. So, I'm not that impressed with the launderers on earth. But Mark was, so we can take his word for it, that it was brighter than what they can do. Um, They saw the revealed glory of God the Son, Jesus, transfigured before him. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God, the glory of God in the face of Christ. They're witnessing this before their eyes. Something they would never seen before, never even imagined it. This is not mere apparent change, this, this trans, being transfigured before them. It, it wasn't distortion. It was actual, real transformation. Metamorphosis in the original. It's where we get the word metamorphosis. It is a change that's happening from one form to another. His garments became radiant and exceedingly white. The the glory of the Lord shone forth so bright, it affected everything, close and far. It's as if Jesus, momentarily on the mountain, slips back into eternity past to what he called the glory which he had with his Father before the world was. At the same time of slipping into eternity past, he's transferring To the future and displaying his future glory in the middle of the lampstands, John writes, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters." In his right hand he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. That's John on the isle of Patmos, the apostle who witnessed this and then sees Christ again. Here on the mountain, Jesus transitions, as it were, back to the glory that he had with the Father before he took on flesh and transitions to the glory that he would have with the Father again. John writes elsewhere about this occasion, we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Remarkable display. Jesus is transfigured before them. And they're speechless. At least at this point. Verse 4. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Surely this is a bit strange. It, it, it's even strange to read. It would have been much more strange for Peter, James, and John. How did they know it was Elijah? How did they know it was Moses? They had never seen him. Photography hadn't quite yet been invented, they hadn't passed down these pictures. But they knew, probably based on the conversation that was happening, they knew that it was Elijah and Moses, the great prophet of old, the great lawgiver. And both of them, interestingly enough, had very famous and unusual departures from this world. Do you remember Moses? He dies on Mount Nebo alone. Do you remember how he was buried? Who buried Moses? God did. 1,500 years before this moment is happening. God had buried Moses. Elijah, even a more famous and unusual departure than Moses, taken up by God in a chariot of fire and a whirlwind. It hadn't been recently, 900 years before this moment. 900 years earlier, he had been taken up. Dead for centuries, Moses and Elijah. But still, somehow, some way, very much alive and safe in the hands of God. And that's the intent of the picture. Peter, James, and John, what I'm telling you, that I must suffer and die and be raised again and that I'm going to return, it's true. There is another realm, we might say, that there's another world. Eternity exists. These men of old that you read about and you trust in the message that they wrote, they are not dead, but they are alive. They're part of the spirits of the righteous made perfect that the writer of Hebrews writes about. We have no idea how they have their bodies at this point. We'll just assume that somehow they were provided their bodies there for this account. Though dead long ago, they are alive and safe in the hands of God. This is quite the object lesson for those who doubt the resurrection. And Jesus is providing evidence of his resurrection prior to it happening. Still some would doubt. Still some of us doubt. But Jesus is saying, don't you see Moses? Don't you see Elijah? This same reality is available to us. I mean, the reality of being with Jesus And talking with Jesus. Elijah and Moses, the ultimate summary of the Old Testament. The law of God. The prophets. Jesus himself said, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. And here in the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is saying just that in picture form. He was the fulfillment of everything that the law taught. Jesus was and is the fulfillment of everything that the prophets promised. But their role, their role in history was preparatory, primarily. And the the prep work is done. Jesus is on the scene. The prep work is complete. Christ has arrived. The prep work is finished. And Jesus is, has fulfilled all that the law taught and all that the prophets promised. Elijah and Moses represented the culmination of everything promised in the Old Testament. Them being there with Christ at the Mount of Transfiguration, they are in unity together saying, Christ is all in all. He is your all in all. Jesus would Later, further confirm, in fact, that all of the law and all of the prophets and all of the Psalms were about him. Luke 24, 44, all things which are written about me, Jesus says, in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Thus, it is written that Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Elijah. Appeared with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. What are they talking about? Luke tells us. Luke's version of the story tells us what they were talking about. He doesn't tell us everything that their conversation consisted of, but in Luke 9, he tells us that they were discussing his departure, Jesus' Jesus's departure, which he was about to accomplish his exodus, literally. They were discussing the exodus that Christ was about to accomplish, securing redemption and freedom for his people. And I imagine when we see him, we'll talk about the same thing, (laughs) the glories of our salvation and what he has done for us through his shed blood. For Moses and Elijah, That amazing event that they had lived in hope of, looking forward to it, trusting that it would one day happen. That great work of the promised Messiah that they themselves died in reliance upon, having no hope, but that what they had taught and what they believed was true in Christ How could they not discuss this marvelous, matchless event that had resulted in the salvation of their souls? The whole reason they're there on the mount that day is because of what Christ was about to do. Now, this is mind-boggling for our finite minds that work based on chronology. God's outside of time He's created time to help us because it makes our heads spin when we don't have time. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Peter must have really thought it was good, right? He didn't want Christ to suffer. He just rebuked him for talking about it in the passage prior. So he must have been loving this. The talk about suffering, the talk about death, just wasn't his cup of tea. But this glory talk, This power and glory, revelation on the mountain, this is good stuff. Let's make it last. That's Peter's approach. Peter's always full of great ideas. If you don't believe me, just ask him. He makes the ridiculous suggestion to build three tabernacles, one for each of them, one one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Why? Why does Peter do this? Well, he evidently thinks that he can sustain this mountaintop experience or maybe this is it. This is the coming of the kingdom that Jesus promised. Maybe he did some secret suffering somewhere and now we're here. So we're going to build these monuments for worship. Now we can understand this, right? You've all had the, a mountaintop experience so to speak. You've had an experience the nearness of the Lord when you've gotten away with just him or just with a group of people, with your family or or on a retreat, and you just want it to last. It's, it's so good to be away from the distraction of the world that the Lord draws near, and we want to make it last. But we weren't made to live on the mountaintop, not yet. So don't be like Peter and fret about having to walk back down and live life in the valley. God is the God of the mountain and the valley, and He gives us what we need to walk in the valley as well. Peter said, it's good for us to be here. Really good. Let us make three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, keep in mind the last recorded statement we have from Peter. You remember what it was? Satanic speech. And if there's ever a time to remain silent, you would think the. The last thing he said, he was rebuked by Jesus. Get behind me, Satan. You're worried about earthly things. Well, he's not on earth anymore. He's in the glory cloud on the mountain. So he speaks. But if there's ever a time to remain silent, now's it. But no one's whispering that to Peter. Cease striving and know that I'm God. That's where it ought When God shows up, that is the rightful response. Be still and know that I'm God. Keep silent and know that I am God. But when you don't have anything to say, verse 6 says Peter didn't know what to answer. When you don't have anything to say, say something dumb anyway is Peter's mode of operation. His primary mode of operation, or you call it Peter's mode of operation, is when you don't have anything to say, say something dumb anyway. And they became terrified. And a cloud formed, verse 7. It overshadowed them, engulfed them. It's not the first time that we see a cloud showing up in the Scriptures. Time and again... The cloud shows up, and it's connected to the presence of the glory of the Lord. At the tabernacle in Exodus 40, in the temple at its completion in 2 Chronicles 7, rising from the temple in the vision in Ezekiel 10, it is a visible, the cloud is a visible manifestation of God's invisible majesty. It is His glory being exposed or revealed to us. But not only was it glorious as the cloud descended and overshadowed them, but a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, listen to him, listen to him. He's my beloved son. I'm pleased with him. Making it abundantly clear that Jesus had fulfilled the law. And he had fulfilled the prophets. And at this point, Moses and Elijah have faded into the background because the promised one had arrived on the scene. Moses and Elijah were but servants, wonderful servants. But Jesus was the king's son. They were like stars in comparison to Christ as the bright, shining sun who is the center of everything. Moses and Elijah faded to the background because Jesus doesn't have peers. He's made us co-heirs, yes, but He doesn't have peers. He wasn't consulting with His colleagues on the mountain that day. He was verifying, making it clear to us and to everyone, that He had fulfilled all of the law and the prophets. And God was making perfectly clear with His voice from heaven that Jesus was the only one worthy of worship. He was the only one deserving of praise. Jesus was transfigured before them. What happened? Deity for all of eternity... And the second person of the Trinity, was at the Incarnation, was wrapped in humanity. And now that deity is permeating the frailty of that human flesh, shining brightly for those on the mountain that day to witness. And not just to sit idly by, but to glory in and to be encouraged by. It wasn't a derobing of flesh. Jesus didn't drop his flesh for the deity to shine through. It wasn't a deification of his flesh. But a bright outshining of the essential deity that he has always had is being displayed. Where the incarnation is a veiling of the divine nature of Christ. Because in him, Colossians 2.9 tells us, in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. The humanity veils the evidence of His deity, which is His glory. But here there's a glimpse of Christ's majesty at His powerful coming. Here on the mountain, it prefigures that glorious return of Christ. It serves as an indication of the glory and the power of Jesus that will be displayed at His future coming. Remember where the disciples are. Not unlike where we are in the difficulty of life, in the trenches, dealing with sin. What do we need? We need encouragement. We need faith to believe the promises. The days are dark. We're prone to despair. And a radical revelation of Christ's suffering and death has left the disciples confused and down. We live this side of history. That doesn't bother us much. We glory in that pretty well. But the encouragement of the eternal kingdom of God is also included in this and that's what serves to encourage us we know Christ has come we know that he bled and died and was raised again and ascended on high but we haven't seen him return with the eyes of faith of faith we can see the promise of his return here that it will be glorious and powerful and for us he is transfigured to convince the disciples beyond a shadow of a doubt about the reality of the eternal kingdom God, of God. What we see, what we feel, where we live, it all feels so real and so eternal. And it is very real, but it is not as eternal as the kingdom of God. So it's not just to convince the, immediate, the disciples in the immediate context, but also to, co- to convince us of the same that Jesus is is God's Son, and we must listen to Him. So then Peter, James, and John looked around, and no one's there, just Jesus. And just like that, the curtain closes back, and the here and the now is what they have. But they saw the glory. What do they do? Verse 9 They seized the opportunity to ask Jesus some questions that they are still confused about. As they're coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. Then, pardon, they seized upon that statement. That statement rose from the dead. Discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. It's as if they argued with one another about what they thought it meant, and then they decided to ask him. It seems like it would have been a better place to start, but to each his own. Why is it, Jesus, that the scribes say, Elijah must come first? Well, the scribes say it because the prophet prophesied it. We read that in Malachi earlier. How is it written that... Pardon. Pardon. Jesus answered, Elijah does come and restore all things. And yet, how is it written that the Son of Man, of the Son of Man, that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Jesus knew this is the real issue that they're trying to get at. They still don't understand that Jesus came to suffer and die and be raised again and return. But I say to you, Elijah has indeed come. And they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. So about this rising from the dead, about the promise concerning Elijah, what what about that? And Jesus just simple and straightforward. Elijah does come first. In fact, he already has come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just like it was written. Again, Jesus is saying, the prophets, when they prophesied about me, it's all true. You can believe it. You can hope in it. Now, Jesus here is referring specifically to John the Baptist, who had come in the spirit of Elijah, and he had been treated very similarly to Elijah, both persecuted by an evil queen and a weak, wicked king. Elijah, King Ahab and Jezebel, John the Baptist, King Herod. And Herodias. The inquiry that the disciples pose here in Jesus' answer, why does Jesus answer in this way? Again, to encourage them, to encourage us, because we need hope. We live in a world where the so-called leaders are not likely to be friendly to Christians and their Christianity. So, what do we do? Do we fret? No, absolutely not. We run to Christ, we trust in Him. That's where we find the hope that we need. Jesus even says here don't relate what you saw up here on the mountain until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And He has been raised from the dead. So then they have the freedom, the obligation, really, at that point, to go and talk about the hope and the promised coming, which is where we stand. We still are on this side of the cross. And we have the obligation to talk about the promise of his coming. He will come. And he will save his people ultimately. But they were sidetracked. I mean, notice just the entirety of the, of the story here. Think about the glory that they've just witnessed. And they're wondering how Elijah fits in not about this remarkable glory and when is it going to happen. They were sidetracked, not with something completely irrelevant or unimportant, but they were sidetracked from a really good thing, a good prophet, a wonderful truth, rather than looking only to the Son of Man, only to Christ. We should learn from them and avoid any and all distractions from Jesus, even good and interesting ones. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. So here's Paul confirming that what Jesus has revealed and taught, which is what the prophets promised and what the law taught. That it's all true and it's going to happen. The dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. There's the great hope, the great encouragement. It does not matter how dark the days are now, we will always be with Him when He descends, and He will descend, He will return. So with all of that, I'll close with three things for us to remember that are communicated by the transfiguration, by this story. There's definitely more truths in here, but if we remember these three, I trust we will benefit as a result. Here's the first one. All of the law fulfilled in Christ. You can probably guess the second one. All of the prophets fulfilled in Christ. And the third one, by far the most important, this is my son. Listen to him. Listen to him. He, Christ, is how God speaks to his people exclusively. He has determined to speak to us through Jesus Christ. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. That is the way that God spoke previously, Hebrews chapter 1. In these last days, the writer of Hebrews continues. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. So God did speak to our fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. In our day, He only speaks to us in Christ, which is what the Father says here on the mountain. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Don't listen to all the other clamoring voices. Don't listen to anything but Him. Peter would go on and reference this occasion in his second letter. The way he talks about this occurrence on the mountain, he says it this way. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Peter confirms he's there. Mark's not making it up. Peter was there. He was an eyewitness of the majesty, the glory, and the beauty, and the power of God being displayed. But but Peter continues in his letter. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves, Peter says, Peter, James, and John, heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure. There's the confirmation that was happening there. To which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. We have the word made more sure. The words that were heard at the transfiguration, this is my son, listen to him. And the words read from the Bible are from the same source, from God Almighty. And Peter says, You do well to pay attention. We do live in a dark place. What is our light? The Bible is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. How long? until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, until He returns, until He comes back. We pay attention. We listen to Him. We listen when He says that He has the words of life. We listen when He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the Scriptures said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. We listen when he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and you'll learn and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We listen when he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The more things change, the more they stay the same. In the early days of the church, the message of the gospel was repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from ancient time and by which He confirmed at the transfiguration and by which we are hoping in this morning. His final return, His ultimate return is part of the basic gospel message. The more things change, the more they stay the same. May God help us to repent and return and receive the forgiveness of sins and experience the times of refreshing that come from the presence of the Lord. And rather than seeking to live on the mountaintop when those times come, may we commune with Him and cultivate His nearness even in the valley as He gives us strength when we're weak. As He gives us clarity when we're confused, as He gives us hope when we're doubting, may He help us to walk with Him in the midst of days that seem like they're changing, but really it's still the same. And He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank You again for Your Word, and we pray that You'll take the truths as they are in Christ and embed them within our souls, that You will bring about faith and repentance initially for those who are lost and continually for each of Your children, that You will help us to not be distracted with the good things but to be increasingly enamored with the glory of Jesus, seeking Him with our whole hearts, in order that you might receive honor and glory now and forever. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.